Well, good morning, friends. Thank you. If we haven't met yet, my name is Drew, and I've been the pastor of worship arts here since the end of August, so coming up on four months now. And I just want to let you know today, before we begin, how grateful I am to be here. I really mean that. Discovery is an incredible place. I hope you know that. These videos, I mean, are you kidding me? The stuff that goes on here, it's incredible. You are an incredible group of people, and I hope you know that. And I count myself really blessed to get to be part of it. So thank you. Thank you for how warm and welcoming you've been, not just to me, but to my family too. We all really love it here, all five of us, four-year-old included. It's a really great place to be, so we're really thankful. And with that, I'm grateful today to get to share with you in a way that's a little bit different from what I usually do, but all the same, like I say every Sunday morning, it is good to be together, and it is good to get to worship together in the many ways that we get to on the Sunday morning. So good morning again. Merry Christmas. I'm so glad you're here. You know, I've heard it said that you can tell a lot about people from the stories that they tell. That often what matters most to us has a way of showing up again and again in our stories. And one of my favorite ways to see this is through the stories that families tell. So you know how this goes, right? Like every family, we've got this set of stories that we tell year over year, sometimes multiple times in a year. And there's something about them, like, yes, they're usually funny, but there's something about them that shows a piece of what it means to be in that family right? A piece of what's important to us, what we value. And if your family is anything like my family, these stories see, oh, what's a kind way, like alterations from year to year, you know, like the the classic, the fish gets bigger or the snow gets deeper. Or in my family, grandpa's proximity to that bear seems to get just like a little bit closer than it was the last time we heard the same exact story. But despite these alterations, The heart of the story, that value, that always seems to stay the same. And so for my family, one of these values is to not take yourself too seriously. Or if you're from the South like me, you might say not to get too big for your britches, right? And one of these stories finds my whole family. We were at the beach one summer. I think I was in early high school. And the whole crew, every few years, we would all go. So like both sets of grandparents, all the kids, all the grandkids, all the cousins. And it was such a good time. We had such a blast. And one evening after dinner, we all decide to go on a walk down the beach. And so those of us who are a little bit younger, and my dad, we decide that we're going to look for seashells or whatever else might wash up on shore. And some people are just enjoying the walk and being together. But my dad and I, we're like out in front of everyone, kind of looking for whatever we can find. And we see this tide pool off in the distance. So we go up to the tide pool. And as we get closer, the water's pretty murky, but we can tell something's in there. And something is really in there because it starts moving. So we're like, okay, we're not going to get too close. But we want to know what's in there. And then the rest of the family, they start egging the whole thing on. Like, what's in there? What do you see? And they all come up. And we circle around this tide pool. And the guessing game begins. I kid you not. Someone says, I think that's one of those horseshoe crabs. We are from West Virginia. They do not know what that is. They have never seen one in their life. But they keep guessing, trying to figure out what's in there. And then my grandpa, he had been taking his time. He was in the back. He catches up, and he cuts through the family. He looks down in the tide pool. He reaches his hand in, and he jerks out this mysterious creature, and he says, they're sunglasses, (laughs) y'all. 
And sure enough, they were like those, you know, those bedazzled early 2000s sunglasses. And uh, there's no greater reminder than to wear those things every day until college to not take yourself too seriously. So that's what I did. <sighs> but, you know, we can see this more broadly, too. Like, we can see this in generations. So, for instance, here in America, in the late 80s and the 90s, in film, the romantic comedy was the most popular genre. So we had movies like When Harry Met Sally, Sleepless in Seattle, Pretty Woman, and My Best Friend's Wedding. They were extremely popular, and they were hyper-focused on romantic love, right? Like how those kind of relationships are an avenue for self-discovery and personal fulfillment. But if you move in time a little bit, you get to the early 2000s, closer to 2010, you see this shift start to happen. And the rom-com, it doesn't necessarily go away, but it's definitely replaced in importance. And we see coming-of-age films like Lady Bird and Moonlight and The Hunger Games, where we're still concerned with self-discovery, but now we look at it in a person's own terms, like that I don't need anybody else to figure out who I am. And so we see this shift in value from generation to generation because of the stories that they're telling. But I think what I find even more interesting than that or the stories, these, these themes that seem to break out of these groups, that break out of a family, that break out of a generation. They cross centuries. They seem to permeate the globe, like all parts of history. We have these themes and these stories that seem to just be part of the human heart. Themes like the hero's journey, right? Where we have this character, they go on this crazy adventure, and they have this really difficult task, and they're victorious, and then they go home a changed person. And we see that all over the place. And then we have some more generic themes, like good versus evil, where the formula goes, we're like at the climax of the story, and it looks like evil's going to win, but ultimately good triumphs, right? That's a classic one. But perhaps one of the most famous one that we love to see in real life, that we love to see in our mythology and fiction, is the rags-to-riches story. We humans, we love to root for the underdog, to, to celebrate the one who overcame all of the obstacles to find fulfillment, especially if that fulfillment is in wealth and material gain, right? We love to celebrate that. Famous literature and film are filled with stories like this, like Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, the Great Gatsby, Great Expectations, Slumdog Millionaire, Cinderella, and perhaps one of the greatest of its time, the 2001 smash hit, The Princess Diaries. Do I have any other 30-something ladies in here? Yeah? Okay, all right. I wasn't sure how that was going to land. Thank you. But we Christians, we love to do this too. We love to preach about and sing about our coming victory. You know, streets of gold, mini mansions, all that stuff, moving from the, the squalor of this earth into the riches of heaven. Man, there are parts of that that are good and true and exciting. But man, I wonder, I wonder if in all of our excitement, if we forget the story of how our Savior actually came. If we forget the life that our Savior actually lived. And I wonder if in that we even forget what our focus is supposed to be. Because you see what is so utterly unbelievable to me. What goes against everything the human heart seems to long for is that this God who, who spun the cosmos together, who, who spoke into the void and from nothing came everything. This God who is so great and perfect and powerful and holy that to stand in his unshielded presence would overwhelm us entirely. 
It is this God who made himself low enough to enter our world, our broken world. Man, when he did it, he, he didn't do so with great parade and applause. He did so almost imperceptibly, quietly, lowly. The king of kings and the savior of the world was laid in a feeding trough. He was wrapped not in fabric of extravagance or wealth, but in swaddling clothes. You see, the story we have here is a story from unimaginable riches to absolute rags. You can tell a lot about people from the stories they tell. And the story we have here, one that is etched into the heart of God the Father himself, is not a story of divine privilege, but it is one of a costly humility. So to begin to understand Jesus' story of humility, we're going to look at Philippians 2, and it should be on the screen here. Philippians 2, starting at verse 5, we're talking about Jesus here. Who? Jesus. Being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus is equal with God the Father. That's like Orthodox Christianity 101, right? Like we can stack hands on that one. Jesus is equal with God the Father. But man, not for a second did he think so much of himself that he had to cling to that. He was so sure of who he was and why he was here that he did not invoke his divine privilege for himself. Not once. It didn't matter what was said to him. It didn't matter what was done to him. He not once invoked his divine privilege for himself. Instead, the scripture tells us that he lived his life as a servant, humbling himself to the point of sacrificial obedience, which is incredible. But if I'm honest with myself, I find myself asking how? How could he do that? Because it's just, it's got to be more than just because it was a noble cause, right? It's got to be more than because it looked good or it sounded good. How did Jesus do that? What was going on in the heart and the mind of Jesus that he was able to let go? I think we have a few stories that might help us out here. So we're going to look at a couple from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry here on earth. They're back to back. The first one we call the baptism of Jesus. So we have John the Baptist. Uh, if you don't know who he is, he's like the super zealous dude. Long story short, he's the cousin of Jesus, and he's out in the wilderness, and he's calling people to repent, and he's baptizing them in the Jordan River. And one day Jesus shows up. And like John knew who Jesus was. He'd known since he was in the womb. He knows who this man is who's standing before him. And Jesus says, baptize me. And John, like I think any of us who were, would be there, who had a full and real understanding of who Jesus is, would be like, nope. You need to baptize me. Are you kidding me? But Jesus, man, 
Instead of asserting his position, instead of affirming his privilege, yeah, yeah, John, you're right, I am the, the son of God, so I should be baptizing you. No, he, he insists in humility that John baptize him. So John does, and as he does, the Spirit of God descends, and the voice of the Father speaks, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Immediately after, Jesus is led by the Spirit in deeper into the wilderness, and he fasts for 40 days, and then the scripture tells us that the tempter approaches him. And this tempter, he questions Jesus's divine privilege by questioning his very identity. This identity, by the way, that God the Father had just affirmed for him 40 days earlier, just 40 days ago, what does God say? This is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And the tempter says, if you are the son of God. What? If you are the son of God. Turn these stones into bread. Jump off the high point of the temple and have the angels save you. Worship me and I'll give you real power. And man, there is a lot we could talk about right there. But for today, I think what I'd like to zero in on is that when Jesus was put in this really difficult physical and mental position, when his very identity, when his very divine privilege was questioned, Instead of inserting that privilege, instead of putting the enemy in his place, he turns to the truth of the word of God. Every temptation is met with the scripture says, the scripture says, the scripture says. He didn't have to make a fuss about who he was because God had already done it for him. God had already done it for him. And we see this same series of events, although the circumstances around it are a little bit different. But we see it again towards the end of Jesus' time on earth. First, with the story we call the Transfiguration. So Jesus, he takes a few of his disciples that go up on this mountain to pray. And while they're there, this miraculous thing happens. And Jesus becomes like this shining, glorious, heaven-like version of himself, right? And the Father speaks again. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And then not long after this, we have Jesus' final exaltation. We find him raised up on a cross while those around mock him by using the same line of questioning the tempter used years earlier. What did God say on the mountaintop? This is my son, my chosen one. And those around him at his crucifixion say, if you're God's chosen one, if you're God's chosen one, come down off that cross, save yourself. And instead of invoking his divine privilege, he remained on that cross. He became obedient even to death on a cross still so sure of his identity as he cried out, Father. He knew who he was to God, and he knew who God was to him. Father, even in his pain, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. 
He was trusting that, that this exaltation, though not on a throne of privilege by the world's standards, was just what the Father had planned to display what the real privilege of a true king actually was. Sacrifice. He came to bring a peace that cost. And any exaltation of Jesus, it came by the hand of the Father only. He knew, Jesus knew, his identity was affirmed in the most ultimate way. He didn't have to assert his identity and use his privilege because the Father did it for him. And because he knew that, he was able to live out a life of radical humility, friends. Radical humility. And we see this humility played out through the stories that Jesus told and the stories that Jesus lived. So first, let's look at a story Jesus told. We're going to be in Luke 14 starting at verse 7. And just to give ourselves a little bit of context here, it's Sabbath, the Sabbath meal, and we find Jesus in the home of a leading Pharisee. So verse 7 says, When he, Jesus, noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. And then humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. And then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or a dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Jesus, he sits in this home of the elite. And he watches as those around him, already in a place of privilege, they're jockeying for more importance and more privilege and more power. But Jesus seems to know something that they don't quite get yet. That honestly, I don't think we often understand. Jesus knows that it is so much better to use our privilege for the advancement of others instead of chasing things that are ultimately going to pass away, all in pursuit of an honor that doesn't even belong to us. Jesus knows that self-exaltation is empty. It's fleeting. It's temporary. That it is only in the exaltation of the Father that we could ever see wholeness from something like that. That for all those who exalt themselves, they will be humbled. But those who humble themselves, they will be exalted. George MacDonald was a Scottish author, poet, and minister. He said, And whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or 
succeed more miserably. And whatever man does without God, he must fail miserably or succeed more miserably. May sound really bold to our modern, wealthy American ears, but man, a life pursuing our own desires and our own success is just simply a life of misery. Jesus invites us instead to live a life not only for those easy to love, our brothers and sisters, our relatives, although I will concede sometimes those people are not always the easiest to love either, but he says not just the people that that we can get something out of, right? That's not the life he's invited us to. He wants us to invite in those who are different than us those who are differently abled than us, those who are differently resourced than us, those who vote differently than us. That is the kind of peace that our king and our kingdom are after. And it is a peace that will cost, just like it costs Jesus. But also like Jesus, you can trust that, man, the Father has got you, and it doesn't always look like the world's version of success, but he has got you, and there is a promise of great reward because when we pattern our lives after the generosity of God, man, we could never be the loser. And that is the story that Jesus is telling. That is the story Jesus is telling. So what is the story then that Jesus was living? And we have a few. We're going to look one at one in Luke 18, starting at verse 18. It says, A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Uh, honor your father and mother. All these I have kept since I was a boy, he said. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, You still lack one thing. Sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, go back. When Jesus, nope, still back. When he heard this, there we go, he became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. If you've been around the church for a while, you've probably heard this before. And if you have, if that's true, then maybe you have an interpretation of it that you hold to, and that's great. For today, I just want to invite us not to let familiarity prevent us from seeing something new here. Because like with everything in the Bible, especially for those of us who've grown up in a tradition that takes the scripture seriously and who knows all of these stories, it would be so sad to just hear a story like this, explain it away because we think we know it, and then not allow it to inform the life we're living today. So we're just going to get a little curious. We're just going to ask ourselves two questions. As we were reading that, so it was on the screen 
what were the parts that made us uncomfortable? Or maybe, what were the parts that we did find ourselves already explaining away? Because this story, regardless of how we interpret its nuance, I mean, it should bring us to a place to question the position we have given privilege in our own life, regardless of what that privilege is or what it looks like. It should bring us to a place to question it. Because, man, Jesus cuts right to the heart with this guy. And let's be clear, this is a position Jesus holds himself. He is not asking this guy to do something he's not already doing himself. Years earlier, before he ever meets this rich young ruler, Jesus tells a scribe, Look man, foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The Son of Man is homeless. Can we sit with that for a second? Right. I just wonder if today Jesus were to ask us the same thing. Like right now, the fire and love in his eyes, if he were to look at me, sell everything you've got, give to the poor, put your treasure in heaven, then follow me. Would we walk away sad? Would we walk away sad? Father, would I walk away sad? Now, there's another story in the life of Jesus that I think is going to help us get to the heart even a little bit more. There's this time Jesus, he's, he's preaching in the temple, and there's a moment while he's preaching that he looks up and he sees the rich putting all of their gifts in the treasury. And then he sees a widow, a poor widow, it says, put two mites in the treasury. And he stops everything he's doing, and he looks at her, and then he tells the people around him, like, man, this poor widow... She has put in more than all of them. For all those people, they put their gifts in out of their surplus. But she, in her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. She put in all she had to live on. And Jesus praises her why. Not, not because of the amount she gave specifically, but because she gave in a way that cost her. And this is what we see Jesus asking of the rich young ruler. It's the same thing we see him telling the Pharisees in the story we were in before. You still lack one thing, rich young ruler. You still lack one thing, Pharisees. You still lack one thing, Drew. Discovery. Give of yourself in a way that costs you. Put your treasure in heaven and then follow me. This prince of peace came to bring peace, yes, but he came to bring a peace that costs. And it will cost us our privilege and it will cost us our preference and it will cost us our resources. It will cost us. And today we should ask, will I walk away sad? Let's go back to Philippians 2. This time we're going to start at the top of the chapter. So Philippians 2, verse 1. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, 
If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Let's focus in here. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the other. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. This is what Paul writes just before telling us the depths of Christ's humility that we read earlier. This, this shows me that that the whole reason Paul writes that Christ didn't count equality with God as something to use for his own advantage, that instead he became a servant, and not just a servant, but a servant who became obedient to death. The whole point of that was to show us what it looks like to bring peace. Because peace, as Jesus and his culture would have understood it, the word is shalom. You maybe you've heard that before. It it doesn't just mean like absence of conflict, like we think. It means completeness and wholeness of community. And that's exactly what Paul is writing here. He describes it perfectly. Don't live for yourself, live for each other. Don't seek your own interests, but instead seek what's best for each other. Tell me, friends, what happens in a community where that actually happens? Where the rich and the poor alike live humbly, giving of themselves not just from their abundance, but out of their necessity. What would happen if we all lived like that, right here at Discovery? Would anyone have to worry that if they forgot themselves, they'd be forgotten altogether? Would anyone have to be concerned with asserting their role, their position, or even their need? Friends, it is in trusting the Father in his plan and in his timing. And please hear that I am preaching just as much to my own soul here. That it is in laying down of our privileges and grasping onto the humility of Jesus that like Jesus we can find that completeness and that wholeness for our community. Which I hope stirs us to ask, okay, great. But what does that look like for me, for our community? How do we do that? And to be honest, the best way we can answer that is to do some work with the Holy Spirit. He's got to inform that for you. But today, I would offer that it probably means giving up more than you want to. There's this quote from C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity that my husband and I very imperfectly live by, very imperfectly live by, but it does help us in making some lifestyle choices. He says, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we're probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do 
because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Of course, Lewis is referring specifically to our financial resources here. And that is true, yes, but I think it goes into all of our shareable resources. Our homes, our time, our skills, our talents, our prayer life. And look, I understand that this can sound really overwhelming. And if it does, just know that I hear you and I get it. And I would like to share with you some helpful words that Dan Pence offered those of us on staff. We were having a conversation similar to this not too long ago. He mentioned how conversations like these and the general attitude of the church when he was growing up, it used to make him feel as though he had to go out and save the world all on his own, right? Like it was actually on his shoulders. But that the Lord has challenged him differently since then. Not to take the call any less seriously, but rather to shift his focus to the person or the people right in front of him. Which has caused me to ask then, okay, how do I leverage my privilege and how do I live humbly for those God has put right in front of me? I think that's where we start. And honestly, that might be where a lot of us end. Uh, Pastor Zach talked about this last week. Like our, our realm of influence can be relatively small. We might just have a handful or two of people who we can really pour into. And so if that's true, then we ask, Lord, how do I pattern my life after your generosity in that small group of people? Live for each other. Put each other above yourselves. Seek each other's interests above your own. But <laughs> I would also encourage you to look around, like right now. Look up. Look around. You're part of something bigger. Your individual resources, they might be small. Your individual influence, it might be small. But when partnered together with the family here at Discovery, the reach is much further you're part of a family here that takes this seriously. And you could walk out into that lobby right now today and find ways that God has partnered with this church to make a bigger impact in the lives of other people. You can leverage your privilege. Pray, ask God, who is it that you are calling me to partner with? How do I pattern my life after the generosity of God? So as we end our time today and we move into worship, we'll do so by just asking ourselves a couple more questions. Just let them sit with your heart as we start singing. Do I trust the Father in such a way that I don't have to ambitiously pursue my own success? Do I trust him to affirm my identity in such a way that I am able to let go and live out the radical humility of Jesus? Is that a value told through the story of my life? This Prince of Peace, he came to bring a peace that costs. It cost him, and it is going to cost those who follow him. But friends, he, he gave everything for you, and he invites you in to give everything for others. And that, that's how our prince brings peace.